Hello, I'm with Yvonne Agazarian. Hi, Yvonne. Hello. So, do you want to give us a sense of what SCT is all about? Yes. SCT stands for System-Centered Training or Therapy. And if it's SCP, it's System-Centered Practice. And it's a way of um, uh, experiencing and observing the world through as if the whole world is a set of systems. So as if the world is a whole set of systems, which is, you know, something that seems uh, a little theoretical, but That's on the right. other hand, you're also talking about experiencing, so it's like a mixture of these two components. That's exactly right. It was started as a theory-driven system. So I developed the theory, and then something happened in the world, which was managed care came in. And when managed care came in, it was obvious that there was going to be a finite amount of time allocated for patients. Mm -hmm. and, and my knowledge is that there's really no way of telling how long a patient is going to need in order to reach the goals. And managed care was clearly going to interfere with that. So I thought then there needed to be a way of developing some kind of system of practice which enabled people to start stop and then start again with the same kind of therapy not having to change styles of therapy not having to change therapists and if they did have to change therapists it would be less difficult because the way the therapist worked would be similar okay so uh, something that allows people to uh, have therapy stop restart again and a sense of being able to pick up where they left it that's right that's right so um, I then started to translate the theory into practice mm -hmm. and I started to see what it meant if I, I had the statement of theory which is a fairly complex statement it basically says a theory of living human systems a theory of living human systems defines so, so a series a hierarchy of isomorphic systems and isomorphy means that they are similar in structure and function and why that is important is it means if you if I learn something about the system of you the way you function and the way you structure is going to be the same as the system of me the same as the system of us the same of the larger systems we belong to like a group mm -hmm. or an organization mm -hmm. and the way all of those systems function are similar enough so that one can generalize what one learns at one level to every other level in the hierarchy. So I want to uh, bring it to a level the way we're talking about systems, we're talking about groups, but in a way because of the isomorphy there's going to be something that you're going to learn in your person system right. and in the body. That's right. And so there's something very concrete where it relates to uh, uh, paying attention to the body as well. Absolutely. Um, in, the, in, the, in the practice that we've developed, we uh, look at the stages of development in the system. And we predict that the system goes through the same stages of development. And then what we do is we reduce the things that get in the way of development. And this is uh, systematic. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we do is we restore the relationship between the mind and reality testing mm -hmm. and the second thing we do is we restore the relationship 
with the sensations and experience in the body with the knowledge of what that brings so that we start to get emotional understanding also mm -hmm. and then the third thing we do is start to uh, reduce the defenses against frustration mm -hmm. so, etc 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 so for instance when you're talking about uh, the reality testing uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about how that happens in practice sure uh, for each one of undoing the restraining forces, mm -hmm. there's a protocol or two. Mm -hmm. So how we undo anxiety is by saying, anxiety doesn't come out of the blue. It comes either from a thought, like a negative prediction or a mm -hmm. mind read, or from sensations in the body that arouse some kind of anxiety because they're unfamiliar, mm -hmm. or the edge of the unknown. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you do that, then you can help people undo negative predictions then they come back to reality and reality test you can get people to understand why sensations in the body are in fact upsetting them mm -hmm. when they're simply signals or information that the body is giving the self. Mm -hmm. So I want to just take for instance this last thing you mentioned the sensations in the body and um, talk a bit about what happens say in a group and how you encourage people to uh, stay with the sensation and that notion okay. of explore, don't explain? Well, yes, uh, but first, the way that any system-centered work works is by functional subgrouping, which means that people never work alone. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they say something, and then they say anybody else, and then the next person that speaks joins them and then adds something of their own so nobody is alone so if in a group uh, we were going to undo uh, if we were going to legitimize sensations mm -hmm. one of the things that we might do is get the group to explore sensations they get when they get anxious then they're able to connect the signals of anxiety like dry mouth cold hands butterflies in the stomach uh, lightheadedness with the understanding that what's happening is anxiety mm -hmm. and then if they undo the anxiety the systems subside okay so I want to bring it back you mentioned the system or the idea of subgrouping which is very important so in an SCT group people are not alone and they're encouraged to subgroup to find uh, mm -hmm. groups of people who feel similarly well it's a question of exploration see you mentioned explain explore mm -hmm. well very important is if we explain things we either tell stories or we talk about what we know already whereas if we explore things we discover things that we don't know yet mm -hmm. or we didn't know we knew mm -hmm. so functional subgrouping helps exploration and then if one person goes as far as they can someone else might take it further so I want to I want to just slow down there for people who don't have the experience of SCT of an SCT group. This functional subgrouping is something that's the opposite of say the stereotypical subgrouping Absolutely. of surface similarities. That's exactly right. And so you don't scapegoat. You, you see. don't scapegoat. In, in stereotypic subgrouping, it's there always is an us and them, mm -hmm. or a a me and you, and it's a push away of the people that are different. Yeah. But functional subgrouping depends on building on similarities and gradually incorporating differences. So let's stay, let's stay there for the similarities for a moment. Just I want to maybe start a little picture 
mental picture for people who are not familiar with it. So in, a, in an SCT group, you would encourage a person who speaks. Afterwards, you'd say, who else? Mm-hmm. And people would have the option either of resonating with a person who speaks right. or of starting something different. Well, if they're going to start something different, they do something first. They say to the group, yeah. is the group ready for a difference? Okay. And if the group is ready, they'll say yes, which means that the group can actually listen to the new topic or okay. subject. So there is a very a very uh, clear structure yes. of um, the uh, encouragement of resonating with something, not muddying the water Absolutely. by everybody putting in different voices. That's right. And with the understanding that the group is going to be a container, that everything can be heard. You've got it. Okay. It's, it's yes and rather than yes but. Mm-hmm. See, yes and builds. Yes. Yes but is diversifying. Yeah. So I can say a token, yes, I really understand you, but I've really got a better idea, which is quite different. Mm-hmm. See? Or, yes, I'm going to apparently relate to you, but actually I want to go on with my mono- monologue. Right. Okay? Right. So we, we, don't, we very rarely use the words yes, but, mm-hmm. but much more important, we don't do the things that a yes, but does. Yes. So we join rather than separating. And so that there is a very, very um, clear indication of what it's like to resonate. And so as you build a subgroup, you're going to have a strong sense of people feeling the same way and you have that really well established, at which point you ask the question and another subgroup can form. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a sense that the group can tolerate. Well, you see, what happens very soon once you do subgrouping is that people start to feel good because they feel understood Mm -hmm. and they develop confidence and they develop security Mm -hmm. and so therefore the ambiance or the norms of the group are very favorable to being able to speak up and to take risks and to say things that you might otherwise not say or be shy of saying Mm -hmm. so what happens very soon in functional subgrouping is that the group develops a climate that is very supportive of being yourself and being authentic and being real. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and and I think another part is that um, that makes it different from stereotype grouping is that you can have somebody angry at another person, but the yes. two can be in the same group. Absolutely. It very often surprises new people when, when they want to get into a fight and you point out, well, you're in the, both in the fighting <laughs> subgroup. <laughs> but there's something we've missed. Yeah. And what we've missed is the theoretical, yes. the theoretical underpinning of functional subgrouping because there is a rather important, mm-hmm. uh, impactful hypothesis in SCT and that is you only need to know one dynamic Mm -hmm. if people are going to survive develop and transform okay Mm -hmm. and that dynamic is the ability to discriminate and integrate differences so So tell me more about the ability to assimilate and integrate the differences well first you have to recognize that there's a difference Mm -hmm. and you know what the human response is to difference (laughs) It attacks it, mm-hmm. or scapegoats it, or so, pretend it doesn't exist. So that's where the, the the avoiding the yes but is a way of avoiding anything that dilutes 
the differences so that you can face them squarely? No, not quite. Because yes, spot is a difference, you see. Okay. But what we want to do is to bring differences in, in such a way that they can be heard and integrated. Okay. So what we do by functional subgrouping is people come together on similarities. Mm-hmm. And as they're working together, they notice just small differences in what they're saying. All right. Mm-hmm. So somebody might say, well, you know, I, when I get a sensation in my stomach, I find I clench it. And someone else will say, it's funny you should say that. When I get a sensation in my stomach, I ignore it. Now, mm-hmm. there's a difference there. But what the similarity is, is that they're exploring their response to a sensation in their stomach. Mm-hmm. As people gradually bring in their own stuff, there are small differences. Mm-hmm. But those differences are small enough to be integrated into the subgroup. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then someone says, I have a difference. Can I bring it in? And the group says, yes. So they might come straight along and they'll say, I'm really not interested in physical symptoms in the body. What I'm much more interested in is what I can do with my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that is a real difference. You see, it's also an either or. Right. And an either or is very divisive, mm-hmm. very diversified. Mm-hmm. So then the people who are interested in exploring what happens when they do their thinking, like they might explore negative predictions causing anxiety, mm-hmm. when they start to explore that and they get the small differences, that subgroup learns to integrate differences. Okay. okay. Now, as the two subgroups uh, swap backwards and forwards, when one subgroup runs out of energy, the next subgroup starts. Mm-hmm. When that subgroup starts runs out of energy, the first one goes again. Yeah, I think it's nice, it's important to remind people that all of this happens within one session. Oh, yes. It's not, you know, because in, de- in defining this, it's not something that happens over, t- it really happens oh, in yes. one session. Absolutely. And the people are in the same room, they're part of the same group. That's right. They're all sitting, for instance, in a si- in a circle. Yes. Uh, we haven't moved people oh, no. physically together. No. But just, there's a sense of, in a way, it's the same thing as when you see the parts, these diagrams of the brain with parts being lit yes that you have exactly the people of the subgroup it's like the exactly yeah so then the group is the container yeah of the differences mm-hmm. and in the meantime as people are subgrouping they're learning to discriminate and integrate differences and then there comes a point where there's a spontaneous recognition that there are similarities between the apparently different subgroups and then an integration takes place in the group as a whole. Yeah. So, for example, they might say, oh my God, do you know what? The way I think and the way I feel is actually related. You know? And yeah. if I think, I can generate feelings. And if I feel, I can find words for those feelings. Mm-hmm. But those are actually two different processes. See, and they've integrated and understood something that they didn't understand when they first started. Yeah. Yeah, and this has happened by processing similarities and difference yes. to the point where within this the group that similar more differences appear. Yes. So that as a result there's more similarities between the groups that were dissimilar. Right. Right. So the full theoretical statement is by discriminating and integrating differences, that means by noticing Differences in what is apparently similar mm-hmm. and similarities in what is apparently different, the system survives, develops, and transforms from simpler to more complex. <laughs> yes. 
It's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> but uh, in a way, the image that I have with it, as you describe it, is uh, it's the same thing as the way uh, we digest, we process food, by cutting it into small bites. Yes. And uh, then the big chunks yes. are more yes. easy to assimilate. But if it was a subgroup, you see, it would be all the root vegetables got cut into chunks, and then carrots, and then some turnips, and then some parsnips. Right. Okay? And then all the things that were not root vegetables, like um, uh, peas and beans and maybe some lettuce. Mm-hmm. You see? And those would be assimilated. And then pretty soon, people would be eating all over the plate. Right. Because those differences would not be worrying. Yes. So that's a, you know, that that's a, uh, they start being very different. Yes. And then they end up yes. all being yes. food. Yes. Yeah. So I want to come back to the part about, uh, you say, you know, when you're describing what happens in the subgroup and say, well, something happens in my stomach or something happens in my chest. So let's talk a little bit about that, how you pay attention to sensation and how you, you handle it. Okay. Uh, in the subgrouping, let me see, there's a major, major difference here which is what we emphasize, uh, that emotions are physical. Mm-hmm. So that with every, with every emotion, there's a physical component. And that is different from, we, we discriminate between emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And the feelings are the words that we give to an emotion. But once we've given those words, we can think them, and when we say those words, we can also generate the feeling whether or not the same thing is happening or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. For example, something really bad can happen, and someone can say, "Well, the word for that is, the word for that is, I feel, I feel, um, I feel overwhelmed." Mm-hmm. Okay. And that word is satisfying because it's almost as if one has come up with a a container mm-hmm. for the experience which represents the experience and it's a relief mm-hmm. to find a word a feeling word that describes an emotion the difficulty is that one can then start to talk to someone in a story and they can talk about being overwhelmed they aren't actually overwhelmed but the word generates the same feeling. Right. Okay? Right. So you have two sources of feeling. One is the real sensory emotional experience mm-hmm. that comes from the relationship between the body and the outside world and the body and the inside mm-hmm. world. And you can also have uh, feelings that come simply from the way you think. Right. So in a kind of a virtual reality yes. uh, process. Yes. So what we do, as, you, as we've mentioned before, we make a big distinction between explaining and exploring. Mm-hmm. So when, for example, uh, people have muscle memory mm-hmm. or uh, 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 experiences in the body that come from uh, past experience, which then get repeated in the present even though it doesn't exist, because, mm-hmm. you know, with the brain... Memories, the brain doesn't know the difference between a memory and an actual episode in the present. Mm-hmm. The, the brain has the same experience. So when we recall a past experience, we may have the same experience, even though it's not happening now. Right. Okay. So um, it's in the process of teaching the mind to discriminate between those two things. Mm-hmm. And then being able to understand what the messages are 
from the body and what they mean. So if one gets a stomach ache, it may be that one is scared and that one has uh, bypassed and has, has, has uh, sent that fear into the body so that one gets a stomach ache when one is scared mm-hmm. or what gets a stomach ache when one is angry because one's afraid of the anger. Mm-hmm. You see? Or it may be that one gets a stomach ache because one's eaten something wrong. Okay. Or one gets a stomach ache because something is really wrong with us. So it's important to be able to discriminate between a, a signal from the body which has to do with now Mm-hmm. now and signals from the body which have to do with the past right right so that's a very important part of just realizing that you know our instruments basically blind us to that our instruments uh, the brain you know the uh, you know that you say that um, as you know something from the past we're not able to discriminate right whether this is something that's happening uh, yeah. Or whether that's something the brain can't, but our mind can. I mean, we use the right. And not every there's a lot of controversy about this. So let me be clear how we use it. Okay. We use the brain as the physiological sort of programming function. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the mind as something that one can use to learn to interpret what happens in the brain. Right. So um, through teaching the mind and training the mind yes to be observing to be observing it comes the possibility of discriminating yes whether the experience yes. is something that responds to the environment what or, some, or one's inner environment one's inner environment or whether it is something that is simply uh, reconnecting to uh, a past. memory or a past uh, or it may be that one gets the idea and gives oneself the symptom right so could you talk more about how you train to uh, to recognize that? Uh, yes, let me think for a moment. Um, well, the big thing is we start with recognizing the difference between the past and the present. Mm-hmm. And we uh, also train for recognizing roles. Roles are systems, and each role has an experience. So, for example... The roles right now are you're the interviewer and I'm the interviewee. Mm-hmm. Okay. And those are two different roles and they exist in the present. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're also friends. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are different roles. Mm-hmm. And we have past memories of those roles. Mm-hmm. So we feel good about each other in the present. Mm-hmm. Although we actually haven't earned enough in the present to feel good about each other. <laughs> you see? Right. Okay. Although we feel as if we have mm-hmm. because of the past. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, why would it be important to know the difference there, see? The difference would be that it's not enough for us to be friends in the past. We have to be aware of each other. Are we playing useful roles in the present? Am I being a good interviewee? Mm -hmm. Are you being a good interviewer in relationship to our goal? Yes. Okay. Now, if we import the friendly feelings, we might not be clear enough about what we should be doing in terms of our goal right mm-hmm. now, here and now for the goal mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. then the other thing is that we make discrimination between two very important systems the system of the person mm-hmm. and the system that relates to being a member of an outside context mm-hmm. so you and I are members of outside contexts yes okay and we have clear goals and our behaviors ideally are oriented to that goal mm-hmm. okay 
Now, inside ourselves, we could import a role relationship which wasn't useful. Mm -hmm. Okay, for example, um, in all of us there is a dominance and a submission. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I imported either a dominance or a submission, I'd be inviting you to take the other side. Okay. Okay? So we might end up with you bullying me mm -hmm. or me frustrating you. Mm -hmm. And that wouldn't be to do with our roles here. It would be to do with some look-alike in the past that we have imported into the present. Mm -hmm. Now, the difficulty in doing that is if we import a role from the past, we have the full experience of what it was like in the past, and we get partially blinded to the present. Right. So we only pick up the information in the present that fits with our experience in the context in the past. So let me just uh, maybe give a little bit of a summary yes. and see if I capture this. Uh, in a way, the image that comes to mind is um, uh, as we are um, having a common task, there is a commonality of purpose, Yes. and so there is clarity yes. around that. Yes, and also choosing behaviors that would fit now. Right. Like you just used a questioning behavior, mm -hmm. and I'm using a reinforcing behavior by saying yes, yes. Right. That's appropriate in relationship to the task. Yes. So, so in a way, it's, uh, it's related to the concept of orienting. Yes. As we, we have a goal, yes. we see it clearly, yes. and we adapt yes. uh, in order to fulfill that goal, so yes. we're in alignment, and that's, yes. uh, that falls into place. Our language would be that our behaviors are a vector towards the goal. A vector towards the goal. Is they come from a role, mm -hmm. and we select from that role those vectors that are appropriate to the second. And the role is appropriate to, uh, to right. the goal and to the situation. Because it's in the present. But, but if on the other hand uh, we import from our past history a role that has nothing to do with the present and with the goal then we're muddying the waters we can on the other hand supposing I've had a history as an actress somewhere else <laughs> see, then I could import the ability to act into this and it might be helpful mm -hmm. or it might start to be artificial mm -hmm. so we wouldn't really know as we import a past role whether it's going to be helpful and part of a present work or whether it's going to get in the way. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we can tell is by paying attention to the effect of what we do on the present circumstance and the and vector towards the goal. And that's where we come to that observing quality. Yes, which we call the self-observing system. The self-observing system. Different from the ego. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about the self-observing system, maybe something like mindfulness. No. Okay. No. <laughs> the self-observing system is the ability, the developing ability to discriminate and integrate differences. Mm -hmm. So it's like a mini subgroup inside oneself, mm -hmm. discriminating and integrating differences so that we can behave appropriately in the present. So, for instance, how does it, you know, uh, let's take, we, we, we take the example of a conversation, interviewer, interviewee. Like uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, where does the self-observing system help us um, pay attention to our roles and to, uh, to the, in, in relation to the goal? Well, what you're doing is you're keeping an eye on the uh, voice level. Okay. Okay. Your self-observing system 
has to discriminate mm-hmm. whether it's similar enough to what we need mm-hmm. or whether it's too different that it requires adjustment. Right. It's your self-observing system, like your researcher. Mm-hmm. See, a more popular word is researcher. Yep. Okay. And you have to be do- using that part of yourself in order to monitor our behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can signal to me to change my relationship to the microphone. Right. Okay. Which I just bumped with my nose. (laughs) That signaled me. My self-observing system noticed that I bumped my nose on the microphone, and therefore I needed to change its position. (laughs) Right. So, so then there is, um, so there is this dialogue. So that sense of subgrouping uh, inside. Yes. And uh, while there is an overarching function, that's a larger goal. Yes. There. S- smaller goals yes. that these different subgroups yes. are yeah, dealing with. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So let's come back to the uh, isomorphy and the sense of um, you know this uh, physical sensation. Right. And the explore, don't explain. Yes. And for instance, uh, I think one of the things you do is to encourage people to contain and not to act out. Yes. The so let's yes. let's talk a little bit that about the impulses and uh, you know the containing and exploring. I can give you a really good example. Because mm-hmm. I'm working, w- I was working with someone who um, did a lot of uh, massaging his arm. Mm -hmm. And as we were working, whenever it got tense, he'd massage his arm. Mm -hmm. So when we had a good enough relationship, I'd say, have you got any any idea why you're doing that? Mm -hmm. And he said, no. So I said, well, are you interested in seeing what would happen if you didn't do it? Mm -hmm. And so he said, yes. So then he said, well, when I don't do it, I get very tense in my shoulder. Mm -hmm. So I said, well... Uh, what happens when you do it? Well, the tension in my shoulder goes. So I said, well, are you interested in knowing what the tension in your shoulder is about? Mm -hmm. So he said, yes. So I said, well, would you describe it? And he said, well, it's sort of a pinching here, and it's actually it's in both shoulders. And I said, okay, have you got any idea what that might be? Anything like that ever happened to you? And he said, no, I don't remember. He said, I do know one thing. He said... My mother used to grab us by the shoulders. Now, I don't remember her doing that to me, but I've seen her do it with dogs, and I've seen her doing it with my younger brothers and sisters, but I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So his shoulders remembered it. Right. And then we went on working with what that meant for him and what that meant in relationships and etc., etc. So what he had there was he had a displacement activity mm-hmm. from the feeling in his shoulder. Mm-hmm. His feeling in the shoulder was tension and pain. What it meant to him that was that he was being grabbed mm-hmm. and his whole wherever, whatever he was doing and whatever he was wanting was interfered with. Mm-hmm. Then it transferred to if someone didn't agree with him, right. he would stroke his arm because what was fe- happening for him was he felt he was being grabbed he got painful tension in his shoulders which he displaced onto his arm which he could then soothe mm. it's very moving actually yeah, very yeah. very very moving yeah. so there is a beautiful example of muscle memory which is out of consciousness mm-hmm. related to a role mm-hmm. with others mm-hmm. related to the defense against 
the pain, of not so much the pain in the shoulders, although that was physically painful, but the pain of the disruption of being able to be himself. Right. So it was, a, it was just a beautiful example of how the body and how his relationship to what was happening in his body managed to soothe himself in the present, mm -hmm. but at the same time kept him distant from anybody by whom he felt grabbed. Okay, so in a way, this is a way of um, you 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 see that as a way of importing that um, ex episode from the past yes. into the present yes. through the physical sensation. Absolutely, and there's an awful lot of that. Mm -hmm. You know, our posture. The other thing that is physical, the, there's there are different postures that go with roles, mm -hmm. and if we're not aware of them. We send out a roll signal which invites the reciprocal response. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I sit back and look down my nose at you with my arms folded and my legs crossed, you're going to feel either the impulse to fight me mm -hmm. and put me down, or you're going to feel the impulse to go one down and be sort of humbled. Right. Okay? If, on the other hand, I look at you up under my eyebrows, you know, duck my mm -hmm. head down and look up under yeah. my eyebrows, you are either going to want to look after me or you're going to want to get rid of me because I'm a nuisance. Mm -hmm. So our role postures in our body uh, stimulate other people to take the other side of the role posture. Right. And we call that role locks. Mm -hmm. Now, those role locks, locks yeah, yes. you get ro locked into a reciprocity of roles. Right. So what we try to do is to become aware of our behavioral postures which then gives us an insight into we are repeating a role mm -hmm. and the same is with our voice tones so you want to just say there because in a way um, this is something where as you are aware of your posture uh, what's interesting is not just to see it as posture or even to see it as something that you inherit from the past no. but to see it as actually something in which you are unconsciously active yes. in creating something among other people yes which and will give you a look alike to what happened in the past yeah. with someone else but so so it's a way of restoring a sense of agency because instead of just simply uh, feeling passive about this role, yes. you discover that it exists and you have the possibility of undoing it. Yes, that's right. And you can stop inviting people to either bully you or go one down to you, or etc., etc. Right, right. So, so very much a sense of um, uh, at you, you're not just looking at your person system or looking at you and your parents or your... No. That, but you are uh, seeing how changing that understanding of your person system can change your interpersonal right. system with, with other people. Absolutely. And there's another, another aspect of that, which is listening to one's voice tone. If one, for example, if one starts to hear oneself talking, well, I'm so frustrated about that, and look what they're doing. Hmm. Do you hear the voice tone? Yeah. You see? Now, that voice tone tells you you've gone into a victim role. Okay. Or, or you, you get sharp, and you say something like, well, I don't know why you did that. Mm -hmm. Okay. You've gone into a dominant role. Mm -hmm. So, you're, after a while... It's not as if you're really listening. It's like on the back burner mm -hmm. is an awareness that your voice tone is flagging something right. that you don't really want to act out. So then you recognize that the voice tone is signaling that you've gone into a role 
and that the role is inviting others to take the other side mm-hmm. and that you're now in a repetition which is not good for you mm-hmm. and which you don't really want to be in. Yeah. And you also notice how seductive it is to go back to those old roles. Because there's a groove. Yes, there's a groove. Yeah. Yes, there is. Well, all of that is done in subgrouping, you see. Mm -hmm. And the longer the group's together, and the more subgroups work, the more unbearable realities about us become bearable. Because they're shared, Mm -hmm. they're human, and they're common. So after a little while, one can look at one's sadism, one look at one's masochism, one doesn't necessarily use those words. Yes. One can look at the impulse, the murderous impulses we have when we're frustrated, which previously we may not even have been aware of, and just turn back and become depressed. Mm-hmm. So with functional subgrouping, over time in a group, there's really nothing about being human that we can't explore including really difficult things like uh, what would it be like to be a commandant in a concentration camp? Mm -hmm. Can one explore the part of oneself that might have done that efficiently? Which is a horrendous idea if you've just begun it. But if you move down the pike pretty soon, you are able to resonate with and understand all the ways that human beings behave without scapegoating them. Because, because everything that is in you exists also outside. That's right. So um, everything outside exists. Exists in, us. in, in, in you, in us. Yeah. Uh, so there's no sense of, um, you know, there's a sense of support for um, exploring it. And 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 the, you know, the both the admiration and triumph and the pain and horror of being human. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's. It's important for us to be fully human. The fantasy is that if we worked more like this, we might be able to do something about the way that uh, we are so wedded to wars. Yeah. And so wedded to uh, violence and so wedded to uh, programs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Because as human beings, we keep acting that out over and over again. We keep making it them and us yeah us and them and so that's the hatred we have of differences which is why we come back over and over again that instead of scapegoating differences one has to learn to discriminate them understand them and integrate them mm-hmm. instead of scapegoating them yeah yeah so scapegoating and scapegoating them within the context of a group and within the context of oneself and within the context of society at large. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. It's very, very hard work. Uh, people who are in training in SCT, it takes a while. It takes quite a long while. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of work. But you know what I found? Because, you know, I started as a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. So uh, in my early days as a therapist... Uh, I was aware of how much human suffering there was and also there is some suffering in watching that much suffering Yeah. since I've worked with SCT people get to the same place sometimes deeper than I was able to get them as a psychoanalyst and often much more broadly without that same level of suffering because it is done in a containing empathic attuned subgroup 
Mm-hmm. So it's bearable. What was hardly bearable for some of my patients on the couch, I don't see that happening uh, in working with SCT. Things are unbearable. So I want to just make a distinction here. When you talk about SCT, do you talk in this case about SCT as practiced in a group or also SCT practiced in individual therapy? And with oneself. Mm -hmm. So it's in a group, in an organization. Mm -hmm. See, for example, if you take an organization, your team, as part of the department, as part of the organization, each of them have, each of them have the same issues to deal with. Mm-hmm. Although because their contexts are different, their issues will be different, but the way they need to deal with them will be the same. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm coming back from there to what you were saying about how SCT uh, makes it uh, possible to come out understanding or dealing with one's problems with in less with human problems human problems yeah with less pain that's my impression mm-hmm. you know I believe it's true because that's my experience with it mm-hmm. um, other people may find it different from that but one of the, the things I see in addition to um, the theory itself um, that one of the flavors one of the things that SCT that you have given to SCT is a sense of um, um, you know, a poetic sense almost with expressions. You know, when you talk about something like sitting at the edge of the unknown, explore, don't explain. You know, um, this kind of a quality that even just that language uh, is a way of taking somebody out of the familiar role of I'm suffering. Um, yes. You know, the other thing we do is we don't diagnose. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do diagnose, but we don't use diagnostic labels which can be felt as pejorative mm-hmm. you see? so we don't do that we use much more driving and restraining forces what's getting in your way from meeting your goal mm-hmm. see and what's the drive and the idea very important from Kurt Levin if you reduce the restraining forces the drive towards the goal just naturally moves on right so if you reduce the restraining forces to survival development and transformation mm-hmm the drive just automatically moves towards development. Mm-hmm. So there's a very, um, uh, there's a sense of, you know, there's a, almost a built-in sense of movement, you know, that's there. Yes. Which in a way that, um, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, other uh, forms of therapy is not necessarily there. Well, I think it's there in its own way. Mm-hmm. We've, we've just spent a lot of time finding the language, finding the attitude, Recognizing that the only difference between the patient and the therapist is the role. Mm-hmm. Okay, that the the role of the therapist is to get training, so that they can help the patient explore and discover what's in the way of them getting what they want. Mm-hmm. You see, so there's a little buzzword we use: me structure, you energy. <laughs> so I'm my job as a therapist is to provide the structure your job as the patient is to use my structure with your energy to get what you want Mm -hmm. because my structure are a series of hypotheses that if you do this it's easier to get that Mm -hmm. see so we are very clear about structure like all our groups use functional subgrouping whether they want to or not Mm -hmm. 
if they don't use functional subgrouping, they can't be an SCT group because the process of an SCT group is to discriminate and integrate differences instead of scapegoating them. Yeah. Okay. So me structure, you and energy. <laughs> me giving you the fork in the road of choice. Mm-hmm. You making I any choice you want except the choice of not to choose. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the structure is very clear. You've got to choose. Mm-hmm. But which way you're going is entirely up to you whether I think it's the right way or not. Mm-hmm. My opinion is no good. Yeah. My structure is where it matters. Yeah. So you function as structure. <laughs> so, so that's a good way to put the um, uh, sense of creating a structure uh, and and embodying it Mm -hmm. and as you do that uh, it's something that happens between the leader and the group or between the therapist and the patient but also then uh, gets absorbed by isomorphy inside the individual yes for example uh, the time 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 boundaries the Mm -hmm. structure of time we try to start and stop on time now Starting on time is one of the hardest things for a group, particularly a big group, mm-hmm. you know. And the groups that don't start and stop on time have a different character. Because if they don't start on time, nobody really knows when it's going to begin. Mm-hmm. So it starts later and later and later. And if it doesn't stop on time, people never know whether they're going to be able to put their nickel in the parking. Sorry, that's age. A quarter in the parking, <laughs> <laughs> the parking machine. <laughs> So we are very clear about the structure of space and time. Mm-hmm. Okay, mostly groups that we work with come on time and leave on time. Now, over time, that starts to erode, mm-hmm. and we have to reestablish the structure. Mm-hmm. But something that interests me very much about, for example, what happened in a fairly recent group of about twenty twenty-five people who've been working for five or six years together. Some coming and going, new members coming, others leaving. Um, this semester, the group decided that it wanted to give presentations. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than having the first IRB theory in which I would give them the theory and they'd discuss what I gave them, they decided they wanted to do presentations all by themselves. Mm. They organized themselves so that two people did a presentation every session. Mm-hmm. You know? I've never seen that. I've never seen a group of people decide that they want to give themselves <laughs> this, and they are doing beautifully, mm-hmm. absolutely beautifully. So was that a group that had passed the authority issue? Yes, or, yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yes, it was a group that has done the authority issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think as we are, do you want to do you want to find a way to end? Um, I'd like to put one more thing in, sure. which is that the phases of system development. If one knows what phase the system is in, mm-hmm. one doesn't give the system things that it can't do. So, and of course, it fluctuates. You know, uh, a group may have gone all the way through to the work phase, but may, for a period, work in a flight phase. Mm-hmm. You see, so if you adjust what you require, what you're putting at the group to solve the goals of the group, if you adjust those to what the group can do there really is not much of a failure experience. Mm. And you can always keep reducing the restraining force in that phase so it can move to the next. 
So understanding the phases of system development uh, is a very relieving thing to do for a therapist. Mm-hmm. Because so, the therapist so doesn't have to be so bewildered about what the group is doing. Right. So it gives you it gives a therapist a structure, and there's a context, uh, paying attention to the context, and the, the the theory functions as a structure. Yes. So, so that in a way, the therapist is not alone with their group, no, but no. is held by the larger group exactly of the experience right. of SCT. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And we have a little, little. Um, uh, no, it's quite big actually. Any member of SCT can call up uh, a licensed member or an experienced member for a 10-minute consult on the telephone. Mm-hmm. Anytime they want to. And if the person that they've called up has the time, the energy, and the resources, they'll do a 10-minute consult. So nobody is alone in SCT. Mm-hmm. We also do an enormous amount of work on um, uh, the bridge, which is the ability to phone in and have a conference call. Uh, because we are so spread over America and also in Scandinavia and, and England, mm-hmm. we do a lot of work on the telephone. And we thought that was going to be very difficult. But in fact, one knows the voices, mm. and one can hear when someone's gone into a role from the voice tone, mm. and we can ask them, are you suddenly in a role? <laughs> So we do a lot of work in lots of different ways, making contact with each other when we need to, mm-hmm. as well as the formal get-togethers on the conferences. The conferences, yeah. yeah. Good. <laughs> Thanks, Yvonne. You're welcome. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. SCT. Mm-hmm. We also do an enormous amount of work on... Um, uh, the bridge, which is the ability to phone in and have a conference call. Uh, because we are so spread over America and also in Scandinavia and, and England, mm-hmm. we do a lot of work on the telephone. And we thought that was going to be very difficult. But in fact, one knows the voices, mm. and one can hear when someone's gone into a role from the voice tone, mm. and we can ask them, are you suddenly in a role? <laughs> so we do a lot of work in lots of different ways making contact with each other when we need to mm-hmm. as well as the formal get-togethers on the conferences the conferences, yeah. yeah good <laughs> thanks Yvonne you're welcome this recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast see the website relationalimplicit.com